this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Geraldine Farr, The Story of an American Singer, written by Geraldine Farr and published in 1916 by Houghton Mifflin Company. Chapter 4 My First Days in My Dream World My meeting with Jan Doretsky is stamped vividly in my memory since he was the first personage from that beautiful dream world of opera that it was my privilege to meet. Music lovers of America need no reminder of his tremendous vogue as a man and his wonderful career as an artist. I had the opportunity to sing for him through Yahinjir Kola, a Hindu professor who at the time was interesting Boston society with his Oriental teachings. Just how I met him I cannot recall, but he had personal acquaintance with many of the artists, both here and abroad. And so one rainy morning, dismal weather always seemed to accompany such ventures, my mother and I, escorted by Professor Kola, descended at the Parker House, where the Duretsky brothers, Jean and Edouard, were stopping. I remember that I played my own accompaniment and sang rather indifferently. The inspiring mood was not to be commanded. Mr. Duretsky listened politely, probably having been bored often by many such young aspirants, and gave me sensible advice that could apply to the average girl of intelligence and enthusiastic musical ambitions. I recall that I listened attentively and seriously, quite realizing that Mr. Duretsky could hardly glean other than the most superficial of impressions after hearing a stranger for half an hour and then hardly at her best. Upon his advice to go to New York and consult a teacher of whom he had heard excellent reports, my mother and I made plans for such an immediate change. My father listened in passive amazement, but acquiesced, as he always has, in the belief that whatever emotional tornado should overtake me, my mother's steadying influence would maintain the necessary equilibrium. I shall never forget my excitement and curiosity upon our arrival in New York. The first thing I wanted to see was the Metropolitan Opera House. The great yellow building at the corner of Broadway and 39th Street seemed to promise all kinds of wonderful possibilities and the fulfillment of my dreams. Little thrills of hope made my heart sing and my spirits soar as I looked at the billboards, and whispered to myself, Some day I will, I must sing there. My name shall adorn those walls and spell enchantment to the passing crowd. I walked on air, absorbed in the rosy future I was planning so confidently for myself. The teacher who had been recommended to me for this visit to New York was dear old Louisa Capiani, bless her. She who had been the teacher of many of the light opera singers was greatly pleased at my singing, 
and wanted me to sign a three years exclusive contract with her, but my mother decided that I was too young to have my future controlled in any way. The arrival of hot weather drove us to the country, so with great regret I said good-bye to Capiani, and we started for Greenacre, Maine, and it was there that I met Miss Emma Thursby. She occupied an enviable position in New York musical circles, and was recognized as an excellent authority on voice. She was kind enough to say that she would be glad to have me study with her when she returned to New York, and so it happened that the following autumn found us back there, and I commenced my studies with her. That winter of 1897-98 was full of excitement and thrills for me. In addition to my studies with Miss Thursby, I went to the opera and theaters as often as I could afford it. And what a whirlwind of emotions it was! Melba in Faust, Romeo and Juliet, and Lucia, Calvé, the peerless Carmen, magnificent Lehmann, later to become my revered teacher and dear friend, the incomparable Jan Doretsky, handsome Paul Planson, sprightly Campanari in The Barber, memories crowd in upon me, not forgetting the versatile Bauermeister of all roles. I rarely had a seat, but was one of the army of standees, eager, enthusiastic, oblivious to all, save the dream world these wonderful beings unfolded before me. There was one upon whom I lavished all the ardor of my youthful heroine-worshipping years, our own lovely Nordica, who became my ideal for beauty, accomplishment, and perseverance. Later I was to owe to her friendship and that of her husband, Zoltan Durma, the valuable and timely advice that diverted my path from a provincial theater in Italy to the magnificent royal opera in Berlin and subsequent friendships that have proved so potent as well as so spectacular a feature in my career. Among the plays which I saw that winter were The Devil's Disciple with Richard Mansfield in the star role, Julia Marlowe in the Countess Valeska, and Ada Rahan in The Country Girl, and as Lady Teasel in The School for Scoundrel. How I did love her as Lady Teasel. All wonderful plays for a schoolgirl, still in her teens. It was at this time also that I first met Melba, who was in New York, and it was Miss Thursby who took me to sing for her. Much of my former nervousness had worn away, I had worked hard, and was anxious for Melba's approval and her impartial judgment as to the advisability of immediate study abroad. That day, too, the sun was radiant, I was in excellent humor, and all in all, everything pointed toward a happy and favorable meeting. I remember Melba's enthusiasm and generosity with gratitude, though I have not seen her these many years to tell her so. I sang unusually well to my own accompaniment, and she was so genuinely interested as to propose that I should at once sing for her manager, C. A. Ellis of Boston, of whose opera company, in association with Walter Damrosch, she was the scintillating luminary. So a few days later, 
My mother and I joined her there at a hotel which was the temporary home of the songbirds. Perhaps you can picture my delight. I floated in fairyland to lunch and dine in the intoxicating proximity of these wonderful people, to watch them like gods and goddesses deign to descend to the earth of ordinary mortals. It was like living in a dream. The eventful day came when I finally sang for Mr. Ellis. It was in the Boston Theatre, and Melba, Mr. Domrosh, and many others were present. I was a little anxious at the idea of singing in such a large, empty auditorium, and feared that my voice would not be heard to advantage in such an enormous place. Yet after the ordeal was over, Madame Melba took me in her arms and embraced me with enthusiasm and affection. She predicted such splendid things as even I scarcely dared hope. I was elated and grateful indeed at the general commendation, for Mr. Ellis offered me an engagement, and that night at the hotel Melba wished me to sign a contract of several years to place myself under her tutelage and appear later in opera subject to her advice. My dreams were fast becoming realities. But, as usual, my mother's good sense dominated the situation. While thoroughly appreciative of the advantages that Melba could offer me in her generous impulse, my mother felt that I was far too young to restrict my actions and bind my future career in any manner. Besides, with all the excitement of the winter, my intense emotional nature and the interest I had aroused in musical circles, she wisely thought it best for me to be withdrawn for a time from this all-too-stimulating atmosphere, which might later prove unwholesome and detrimental to serious study. In consequence, I was placed in the household and under the guidance of a dear friend, Mrs. Perkins, in Washington, District of Columbia, to continue other studies in addition to singing while I was impatiently waiting to grow up. In the spring of 1898, when the war spirit spread over the country like wildfire, my mother and I were taken to the White House one pleasant afternoon to call upon Mrs. McKinley. The President's wife received us in the blue room, while Mr. McKinley was occupied in his private office with engrossing business connected with the war. Suddenly the official news came of Dewey's great victory at Manila. The President, with the official dispatches in his hand, entered the room where his devoted wife was surrounded by a sympathetic group of friends. In turn, we were each presented to Mr. McKinley, and then, thrilled by the announcement of the victory, Mrs. McKinley asked me to sing the Star-Spangled Banner. There was a piano in the room, for Mrs. McKinley was intensely devoted to music. I played my own accompaniment, and, stirred by the glorious news and inspired by the presence of the President and his wife and the compliment of being asked to sing the national anthem in the White House, I sang with all the ardor and intensity of which my nature was capable. I have sung the Star-Spangled Banner many times since, but only once under such inspiring circumstances, when, at that dramatic moment, after the tragedy of the Lusitania, I called upon the crowded house at the Metropolitan Opera, a benefit performance of Carmen, to join me in our national hymn. 
garbed in Columbia's robes, with two Red Cross nurses at my side, the tableau awoke thunderous applause, and the great house joined in the singing with a will. You've been listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to ko-fi.com/pennyjohnson and you can buy me a lemonade. That's ko-fi.com/pennyjohnson. Thanks for your support.